Today's scripture comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when God, when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus had offered up prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. Yeah, it is so good to see you this morning. <clears throat> it has been a delight to be with you over these uh, weeks of July and to kind of walk our way through Hebrews. And we are now in our uh, third week of taking a look, especially at the author's Christology, what he says about Christ. And you remember we've said that what Hebrews is trying to do is to give us very strong encouragement for hanging in there in the faith by giving us clarity as we think about the identity of Jesus and clarity about the nature of the gospel. If we become fuzzy in who Jesus is or what he has accomplished on our behalf, then that's going to affect our ability to be able to, to endure through the challenges that we face in life. Tim Giago writes about a moment in World War II World War II was drawing to a close. The German army was sending children to man the front lines to try to stem the tide of the Allied armies who were pushing into Europe. It was a futile effort at this point. Dr. Carl Schlesier writes this. He was a young German soldier at the time. He says, I was in a battalion of teenage grenadiers fresh out of training and was sent into the front line east of the Rhine River after American forces had established a foothold in the East Bank. Fresh American units were pushed across and our battalion was ordered to plug a hole in the front line. We dug in three companies abreast on a slight rise in the front of a little town of Kirchellen. I was with the first company in the center of the position. My company numbered about 80 teenagers. In bitter fighting, American troops pushed through on both sides and got stuck in front of my company. Only about 17 or 18 of us were left, and we huddled in a two-man foxhole. On the morning of March 28th, amid smoldering tanks and twisted bodies, there suddenly came an eerie silence. Schlesier says he looked out over the hole and couldn't see anything but a busted roof of a farmhouse that was about 200 yards away. And feeling sudden panic, he rose up and he just fired off a number of rounds. And then the eerie silence was broken by a single voice. A lone, 
American soldier who Slessier would learn was actually an American Indian, had walked calmly toward the entrenched Germans, saying in a calm and low voice, Come on out. Come on out. Three words, come on out, communicated motive and opportunity and assurance and hope. And the young German soldiers dropped their weapons, took off their helmets, tossing them back into the foxhole. And the Indian soldier told them to put their hands over their heads, and he turned and he walked back towards the American lines without looking back at these young soldiers. Schlesier was overwhelmed. He writes this. He must have been the most reasonable man, the most perceptive, the most understanding, and by far the most brave. We had not expected to live, and he must have seen how idiotic this wall was, and he acted on his own to save us, risking his life in the process. Later in the prisoner of war camp, we talked about him. If he had not come to get us, we would have died in our foxholes. His action was a personal one. He was not ordered to do what he did. I owe him my life. Now, we've looked at a couple of movements in Hebrews thus far. We said in chapter 1, the author talks about the exaltation of Jesus, how great he is. He's awesome beyond what we can imagine. In chapter 2, he focuses on the incarnation that this great God who created the universe stepped into the world in the person of his son in order to become one of us, to be completely human in all of our vulnerability as human beings, and he died. And if you remember, there was that one point in that passage last week where it says he did that so he could bring many sons and daughters to glory, to the, into the presence of God. Now, what the author does in the great center section of the book is he now moves to the superiority of Jesus as a high priest. He's going to play off of some imagery from the Old Testament, and he's going to talk about that worship system in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about the superiority of Jesus as high priest in the first half of this center section in chapters 5 through 7. And then next week, we're going to look at the superiority of his priestly offering. So you have this really beautiful kind of development working through the book. So today, what we're going to focus on is that Jesus takes you farther than you dream possible. Playing off of this image of the Indian soldier, he, he has come to get us in our humanity, but then to take us to a place where we can have security and stability in life and really fulfill what God created us for in the first place. So we have four movements of chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. The beautiful form of the high priest's ordination, the powerful assurance of the father's proclamation, the reverent submission of the son's humiliation, and then the surprising source of the believer's salvation. All right, so let's look at, first of all, the beautiful form of the high priest's ordination. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Now, what the author is doing in these first four verses of our passage this morning is he's reading his Bible really carefully. He basically has asked himself the question, okay, so what do the scriptures have to say about high priests, right? And so what he does now at this point in the passage is he's going back especially to Leviticus chapter 8 and 9, and we're not going to take time to look at that this morning, but that is the section of Leviticus that is on how priests got ordained as priests, how they got appointed to carry out this service before God, and he's going to kind of unpack five principles. So let's walk through these five principles that we see here. Now, this is not talking specifically about Jesus yet. It's just talking about high priesthood as we find it in the Old Testament. Everybody with me on that? Okay. So the first thing he says is that high priests are taken from among people. So every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. You remember part of what we said last week was you have this dynamic where Jesus became one of us. He took on flesh and blood in order to identify with us, right? And so now the author is going to kind of play off of that idea and say, since he was one of us, he was taken from among us, just like the high priest of the Old Testament. All right, so that's the first point. Secondly, he, he fulfills this role in order to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, when you look at the history of the world, the dynamic of people making sacrifice to the gods is fairly universal. It's, it's kind of, you look at broadly at different cultures throughout history, people have had this sense that when they mess up, when they sin, there has to be some kind of price paid for that. I think we, we have this kind of sense in us as human beings that if we have this guilt, that we need to do something about it. We need, there needs to be a response as we think about God. We intuitively know that sin is costly. Now, you can kind of have a modern arrogance about this and say, oh, we don't believe all this stuff about sacrifice and all that stuff anymore. But Tim Keller talks about this in a way where he says, you know, sin always has a price that has to be paid. There's always a cost. If you think about it, if I uh, sin against Pat, my wife Pat is uh, here this morning, and if I am ugly toward her, if I have a pattern in my life where I am not treating her well, I'm using words harshly in a way that wound her, and she absorbs that over time, she is paying a price for my sin. Do you get that? So we have a dynamic in which we intuitively know that sin is costly. You look at someone's life who has kind of gone off the rails and they've gone down a trajectory in life where they are destroying their life because of patterns of sin in their life. And, and it's terribly costly in a person's life. The problem for all of us as human beings is sin is a bill that we can't fully pay. 
Even if I come back and I apologize to Pat and I ask for her forgiveness and that kind of thing, there are all kinds of dynamics that happen in me every day in my emotions and patterns of life, some of which I don't even realize I'm doing. And the, the dynamic of sin as a power in the world that shapes all of us as human beings in some way is so big, we needed an answer that was bigger than we could give. And Jesus is the one who paid that price. But the backdrop of that is in the old covenant worship system, you have this dynamic with the priest where they came as intermediaries between the people and God in order to deal with sin in an ongoing way. And that's what we're going to kind of see this morning. But with this idea that sin is a bill that we can't pay, I love Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, which says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. And that's where we're heading with this this morning, that, that tremendous debt of sin that we can't pay. It's like what Jesus did is He took that bill of debt and He just nailed it to the cross to get it out of the way. So, the high priest's role in the Old Testament was to deal with sin by offering sacrifices for sin for the people. The third thing you see here in verse 2 is high priest, the high priest has the ability to empathize with people's weaknesses. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Uh, if you go back and you read those passages in the Old Testament very carefully, God knew that we as human beings don't always tune into our sin. And there were sacrifices that dealt when people sinned out of ignorance. They just didn't know what the law said. Or they sinned and didn't even realize that they had sinned. There were sacrifices that kind of covered those situations. When people are straying and wandering off the path of what is right, God has set up this dynamic where those sins can be covered as well. When we suddenly wake up and we find, hey, I'm, I'm just out of sync here with what God would want in my life. Remember a number of years ago, we were in Boston and we had been in Boston a few years before, and we were staying in this hotel, and I kind of had a sense of how to get around, right? And I went, want, took us wandering through the middle of Boston, thinking I knew where I was going, and we suddenly realized we aren't anywhere near where we're supposed to be here. We had wandered way off of the path, if you will. And that happens to us in life as well. Now, Jesus, we're going to find, sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, not because he has sinned, but because he's been tempted in all the ways that we have, but without sin. So he's felt the full force of temptation without ever giving into it. And he can sympathize with us. He knows what we feel like when we are really facing the powerful draw of temptation to get pulled off track. Uh, the fourth thing is the high priest offers sacrifice both for himself and for the people. Now, this is specifically related to the old covenant priests. It's not the case with Jesus. If you want to go look at the end of chapter 7, 
The author there draws the contrast and says Jesus can sympathize with us in all these ways, but he never sinned. He did not have to offer sacrifice for himself. But this is a pattern that we see in the Old Testament priesthood. And then finally, the author says the role is by appointment. You don't just go down to the high priest office and sign up. It's something where God appoints people to fulfill this role as a high priest. In the Old Testament, that was done by whose family you belong to. It was the Levites who actually were the priest on behalf of all the rest of the people of Israel. So you got to be a priest by virtue of who your dad and mom were, right? You were in this family. And the author's going to draw a contrast that we'll see in just a minute when it comes to Jesus. Now, we've just got to walk through parts of Leviticus, and you guys are on the edge of your seat, I can tell, you know, uh, thinking about these Old Testament institutions here. But I want you to think about this just for a minute. We can look at some of these kind of formal rituals that we see in the Old Testament and yawn our way through them and think, oh, that's formal and ritualistic and all of that kind of thing. And we need to, we need to interpret ourselves and what's going on. We don't belong to a very formal culture, do we? Okay, I'm trying to be hip this morning. I've got my shirt tail out, right? <laughs> the, hip, the hipness factor, when I walk in the room with these young pastors, my, the hipness factor just poof, it just drops, right? Uh, but you go back a hundred years and you see pictures of people at baseball games. What were they wearing? Wearing suits. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I can't. Uh, suits and hats and stuff like that when they went out because they had this sense of, of form being beautiful and important. And we also can get that if we stop and think about it. We love the beauty of form. So I'm going to ask if we can just bring up a few pictures here. If you, if you think about the dynamic of the way that the world looks in the way that God has shaped it, there's a beauty to the form, isn't there? Or if you think about nature and different aspects of nature, we love the pattern of color, the symmetry that is built into. And, and what are we doing? We're responding to the beauty of something that is formal. Or if we think even about something like uh, what we've seen with the Hubble spacecraft, the beauty of the vastness of space. And then when we think about human buildings, we love the dynamic. This is actually one of my favorite places in the world. This is the octagon in Ely Cathedral just north of Cambridge. And we, we get a sense of the power and the beauty of a building like that. Now think about how form works in our human rituals that we have. So you have something like the institution of marriage. Uh, I have the ability to marry people in the United States because I'm an ordained minister. And, you know, I, we could get together and I could just say to people, OK, you're married now. Have fun. Don't kill each other. You know, that kind of thing. But we don't do that, do we? We go through the rhythms and the, and the beautiful power of forms 
that have been written deeply in the world because they give a sense of symbol and meaning and beauty to these really, really significant moments. Now think about what God was doing in the Old Testament institution of the priesthood. He was writing a rhythm in the world of how people come and draw near to Him and walk with Him. God did not want us to climb in under the back of the tent. He didn't want us just to saunter into His presence and say, hey God, how you doing? God built in formal ways of how we would approach Him and draw near to Him. And that's the backdrop that we see here. We see the beauty, the beauty of the rhythm of form that God has built in the world. I love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says, A child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, and therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. (laughs) For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we. And what we see built into this Old Testament worship is a beauty of rhythm of rhythm of God working out a way for us to walk with Him in the world, even though we're sinful people and He's a holy God. So how does that relate to Jesus? Brings us to our second point. And that is the powerful assurance of the Father's proclamation. Look at verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As He says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this passage, Psalm 2-7, which is the first of these quotes, We've seen before, it was back at the beginning of that section on the greatness of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 5. And now the author is kind of playing off of that quotation, and because of parallel wording here, you are, he's bringing in another passage, Psalm 110.4. You are a priest forever. The, The bigger picture of that psalm says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he hears that as the Father proclaiming to the Son, to Jesus, this is going to be your role. This is going to be your role in relating to people. And the cool thing about this is Psalm 2-7, if you remember, is a passage where God said, you are my son today, I've begotten you. It's actually about Jesus taking the throne of the universe. 
Him being the ruler of the universe. You remember we said he's going to be the judge at the end of the age. He's the one who's going to wrap it all up. And what this is telling us is that the judge, the creator and ruler of the world, is also our high priest who brings us to God. In other words, if you belong to Jesus in the new covenant and you look into your judge's face, you find there a savior in the face of the judge. And these two passages bring that reality, that dynamic together. My friend Michael Card has a song that says, we look into our judge's face and we find a savior there. That's a powerful, powerful thought. The point that the author wants to get to is Jesus is a different kind of priest. And he kind of unpacks this. There's something rich in this psalm verse here, you are a priest forever, that gives us tremendous assurance. In chapter 7, he's going to say that Jesus is the guarantee of our relationship with God. It also could be translated as guarantor. Like if you went to law and someone was kind of guaranteeing or being the guarantor of someone else's word, Jesus is fulfilling that role for us. He guarantees our relationship with God because He lives forever. Now, we all know what it feels like to suddenly have something kind of come through that gives a guarantee of something. Uh, Not too long ago, I was going to Korea to, to do something over there, and yet my passport was about to run out. And the reality is that if I had not had that official document of the passport, I wasn't going anywhere, right? But then suddenly that passport came in several weeks ahead of time. I had the official document that was my guarantee of being able to travel outside the country and get back in, right? So what we have is a dynamic that's described here where Jesus uh, becomes this guarantee. Let's read a part of chapter 7. It says this. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement, concerning bodily descent. In other words, not because he was from the tribe of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. That's the old covenant law about priesthood. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it's not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since He always lives to make intercession for them. The problem with the old covenant priests is they kept dying on you. But Jesus always is going to be there in the presence of the Father, enabling us to have this relationship with God the Father. It's forever. It allows us to have a sense of assurance because of our relationship with Jesus that we can come to God and have everything we need for life and relationship with God because of who Jesus is. Eugene Peterson tells about a couple named Fred and Cheryl who years ago went to Haiti and had a child named Addie come to live with them. They adopted this little girl because both of her parents had been killed in a traffic accident. They said as she walked with them across the tarmac, she reached up and she took hold of their hands, and they said it was like a birth moment. It was just as real as when they had given birth to their now 15- and 13-year-old teenagers. She describes, the wife describes, that back at home in Arizona, they sat down for a meal for the first time with their new daughter. There were plates of pork chops and bowls of mashed potatoes and all kinds of food filled the table, more food than little Addie had ever seen in one place in her life. And as the two teenage sons gobbled down the first plate and loaded their plates up again, and just kept eating, little Addie got agitated and became very quiet. And Cheryl realized that something was wrong. She was feeling bewildered, insecure. And Cheryl guessed that it was because of the disappearing food. She suspected that because Addie had grown up hungry when the food was gone from the table, she might be thinking there would be a day or maybe two where there would not be anything more to eat. She guessed right. She took Addie's hand and led her to the bread drawer and pulled it out and showed her the backup three loaves of bread. She took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice, the fresh vegetables, the jars of jelly and jam and peanut butter and cartons of eggs and a package of bacon. And she took her to the pantry with the bins of potatoes and onions and squash and shelves of canned food, tomatoes and peaches and pickles. And she opened the freezer and showed Addie three or four chickens and a few packages of fish. And she was communicating to her, Addie, because of your relationship with us, you're never going to go hungry again. All that you would want is here. And we are going to meet your needs and you're not going to be hungry anymore. And she didn't just tell her that she wasn't going to be hungry anymore. She showed her the resources that were there in her new home. What happens in our relationship with Christ is because of who He is. Because He has been resurrected to life, is at the right hand of the Father, always speaking to the Father on our behalf. The resources that we have in Him and life in Him will never be exhausted. We always have what we need for life and for living the way that He would have us live. It is something that is forever because our Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead in resurrection power. 
This brings us to the third point this morning, and that is the reverent submission of the son's humiliation found in verses 7 and 8. How did Jesus get to that point? Well, it's surprising. Look at what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, what the author is actually doing here is he's using language from the Psalms of righteous suffering. If you go back to the Psalms, one of the dynamics you see with the Psalms is they're very honest about the fact that people who are God's people still suffer. And you have these wonderful Psalms where the psalmist is honest and crying out to God and saying, God, I'm broken here. I'm crying, shedding tears day and night. And it's a beautifully honest picture of part of what it means to be God's person in the world. You have a passage like Psalm 116, which is part of what the author is probably alluding to here. I love the Lord because He heard my voice in my pleas for mercy, my cries for mercy. Because He inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call on Him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish, and then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. And when I was brought low, He saved me. For You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And Jesus was heard because of his reverence, not that God delivered him from the suffering, but that the Father delivered him on the other end of the suffering through resurrection after he had died for our sins. Because a path of obedience for him was to stay all the way on that path through the cross and into death so that he could come out on the other side for us. Here when it says that he learned obedience through what he suffered, it doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient and then became obedient. It means that he had never walked that particular path of obedience all the way to its end. And that's what he did in following the path all the way to the cross and dying. It was the perfect, perfect picture of someone coming and saying to the Father, yes, whatever your will is, yes. I, I love the story. I don't think I've told you this story before, but I love the story about a guy who went to um, an African-American church, a black church in the U.S., and he had not been to that type of service before. I, I actually miss aspects of black culture from the South uh, where I grew up, I've had the privilege of preaching in black churches at times and love that, actually, because those services normally last for three hours. <laughs> you think my sermons are long? Uh, yeah. And this guy had gone in and he sat down on the, on the front row and was just kind of observing what was going on. And the pastor came and sat down at the piano and started playing the piano. 
and just started saying, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. And then someone in the congregation picked up and this lady started saying, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. And then somebody else until the whole congregation was just in this chorus of, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And this guy didn't know what was going on. But then everything went, it got very quiet suddenly. And the pastor said, Lord, you've heard our answer. Now you tell us what it is you want us to do. And folks, the, the posture that Jesus gave us a pattern of was an unqualified yes. Whatever obedience means yes to that. That He came to a place where He submitted Himself absolutely and completely all the way to the point of death on the cross. Andrew Murray says of this example for us, he says, the Spirit teaches me to yield my will entirely to the will of the Father. He opens my ear to wait in great gentleness and teachableness of soul for what the Father has day by day to speak and teach. He discovers to me how union with God's will is union with God Himself. How entire surrender to God's will is the Father's claim the Son's example, and the true blessedness of soul. And what Jesus did is He chose a path of love for us that we could not walk ourselves. We could not die for our own sins and the sins of the world. Jesus could. And what He did is He walked that path so that we might then follow Him in obedience in our relationship with God, having been put back into that relationship with the Father through what Christ had done. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the, it's the love of Christ that controls us. The love of Christ that controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died, who for their sake died and was raised. So Jesus has paved the way in obedience so that we might follow him in that obedience because that is the path of real freedom, ironically. And it brings us to our last point, and that is the surprising source of the believer's salvation that we see in verses 9 and 10. In being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now we saw last week that perfection in Hebrews doesn't mean that Jesus was imperfect and then became perfect. It means that Jesus stayed all the way on that path to be fully fitted out to fulfill the role of high priest on our behalf. It, it was him being completed in that role, if you will. We think of obedience as the opposite of freedom. But it's not. In reality, it's the true path of freedom. 
Elizabeth Elliot uses this analogy to talk about this dynamic of obedience and freedom. She says, my husband and I had the opportunity, if you can put the uh, picture of the arch up there. Yeah, there you go. My husband and I had the opportunity to go up into the top of that great arch in St. Louis. I was fascinated to learn about its construction. I know nothing about architecture, but a few things sank into my thick head. I was designated by, or it was designed, excuse me, by Aero Saarinen, the famous architect. And Elliot writes, I was thinking about how he as an architect has perfect freedom to design any kind of building he wants, but he does not have the freedom to discard either the plumb line or the level. The mathematical calculations that had to go into the building of that first-of-its-kind structure are staggering. The workers put up these tremendous stainless steel steel triangles one by one on two sides, and they had to bring them up to meet at the top with no other support than themselves. That's astounding, isn't it? A mistake of an inch at the bottom could have spelled disaster at the top. She writes, that's a good illustration of my subject, which is the liberty of obedience. There is no freedom apart from obedience. And she says this, Jesus has given us the formulas for happiness. He said, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find your true self. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. John 12. The principle of the cross is a paradox. We bring him our sins, he gives us righteousness. We bring him our losses, he gives us gains. We are obedient to him, he gives us freedom. The true pupil says of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission in practicing his scales or mixing the colors in the slow and patient study of the elements of his art. He knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey. And she concludes with this. It is this wholehearted surrender to God's guidance, this implicit submission to His authority which Christ asks. We come to Him asking Him to teach us the lost art of obeying God as He did. The only way of learning to do a thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to Him and to make the doing of His will the one desire and delight of your heart. And at that point, we find the amazing freedom of life that God created us for in being His people. That Jesus is Lord is at the very heart of the good news of the life that God wants to bring to us.